Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Right now, we are about three minutes away from the commencement of the hearing in front of the Utah State Public Records Committee regarding my request for the emails that were sent from BYU to the BYU Police Department directing the BYU Police Department how they should respond to the public disclosure requests that were made relating to the Joseph Bishop investigation. I have been researching and researching and preparing and preparing and I should have 20 minutes to give my argument. The opposing side should have 20 minutes to give their argument and then the committee will be making their decision. The date is Thursday, May 14th, 2020. It is almost 9 o'clock a.m. Mountain Standard Time. I am comfortably ensconced in my underground bunker by the telephone, waiting for the phone call from the committee to begin the hearing. Oop, here we go. Please mute your phone. This call is being recorded and streamed. Can you hear us? I can hear you. All right, we're ready. Um, Rebecca, name again of um, who is representing representing Brigham Young University Police Department. Uh, we have Sam straight on the line. Okay, Sam. Um, we will start your hearing now, and I just wanted to um, you know, welcome you and also to make you aware that under the Utah Mediation Act, any communications or mediation with the government record department that you have had cannot be used in an administrative hearing or provided as testimony according to the act. Do you agree with that? Yes, I agree with that. Thank you. Sam, Sam, yeah, Sam Strait on behalf of University Police, yes, we agree. Great, thank you. Um, And the way these hearings is um, each party is given 20 minutes to present, and that includes questions from the committee, and then the committee may ask questions. And then um, we will move to five minutes of your closing statement. So the petitioner will be presenting first, and you may proceed. Thank you very much. This case is about a private company telling a public agency how to respond to a public disclosure request and doing it in such a way as to hide information from the public that is damaging to the private company. And believe it or not, the public agency goes along with it. The directions from the private company are contained in emails sent to and from the public agency. The emails are in the possession of the public agency. The public has a right to know the contents of those emails. And that is what I am asking the committee to do today, to order the public agency to release those emails to the public. The private company in this case is Brigham Young University. The public agency in this case is the BYU Police Department. The other side, BYU Police Department, is claiming attorney-client privilege as well as another privilege uh, that these records were prepared in anticipation of litigation. My understanding of the Grama statute is that that qualifies them as protected under the Grama statute and that therefore my burden is to establish with the committee by a preponderance of the evidence that the public interest favoring access is equal to or greater than the interest favoring restriction of access. 
I want to give just a brief thumbnail of the facts involved in this case. I have supplied my initial briefing, which was filed with the committee, I think back in December of last year, as well as more recently, supplemental briefing. And I take it that the committee has copies of both of those briefings that I've supplied. Yes, we do. Okay, because later on I'm going to be going to my initial briefing and the two exhibits, the first two exhibits that I have there for comparison purposes. But before I get to that, here's the summary. In March of 2018, over two years ago now, the BYU Police Department, a public agency, began receiving public disclosure requests from various parties, including news media. Those requests were for the police reports relating to the police department's investigation of Joseph Bishop. Joseph Bishop had been the president of the Missionary Training Center in Provo, Utah back in the 1980s. Joseph Bishop was accused of sexually assaulting a sister missionary in the basement of the MTC while Joseph Bishop was the president. The MTC president is an employee of the LDS Church. The LDS Church is a private company or corporation. The MTC itself is located on the campus of BYU, and BYU is a private company. During the course of the police department's investigation of Joseph Bishop, they uncovered evidence damaging to both BYU and the LDS Church. We now know, and I stress we now know, that the information contained in the police investigation consisted primarily of the following three categories. Number one, a nine-page narrative report. Number two, a multi-page victim statement written by McKenna Denson. Number three, an audio recording of the police interview with Joseph Bishop. Now, in the normal course of business, a police agency responding to a public disclosure request would have simply released all of their investigation reports and tapes after making appropriate redactions. But that is not what happened here. Because of the nature of the allegation, both BYU and the LDS Church were potential defendants in the civil action threatened by McKenna Denson. There was information in the police reports that was damaging in this regard to BYU and the LDS Church. In the written victim statement, and I'm going to describe to you how it is that this was damaging. In the written victim statement of McKenna Denson, she mentions meeting with different LDS church authorities, including Carlos Acey, a general authority in the LDS church, and Thomas S. Monson, an apostle in the LDS church. That's in her written statement. That was never released by the uh, police department. To my knowledge, it still has not been released by them to this day. In the audio recording that the police had of their interview with Joseph Bishop, Joseph Bishop mentions, number one, talking with a church authority about what happened and being allowed to continue to remain as MTC president, although he doesn't remember the name of that church authority. And two, he does remember receiving a phone call about the matter from the office of Carlos Acey. In responding to the public disclosure requests, the BYU Police Department did not include this information. The police department, number one, did not release the multi-page victim statement of McKenna Denson. The police department, number two, did not release the audio recording of the interview with Joseph Bishop. The, the police department released only the nine-page narrative report of their investigation. And, and the police department redacted that nine-page narrative report to hide the fact that the victim statement from McKenna Denson even existed. And not only that, they also redacted the narrative report to hide the fact that the audio recording of Joseph Bishop 
interview even existed. And now here's where I want to go to the exhibits so I can show you exactly what it is that I mean and that I can prove way beyond a preponderance of the evidence that the public should know about what's in the emails that resulted in these redactions and the failure to release this information by the public agency of the BYU Police Department. First off, if we can go to Exhibit A, and I hope everybody has that in front of them. Exhibit A was the first police report released to the media because initially the media had made a request for the investigation. And this is the first thing that the BYU PD released. Once again, it's only the nine pages of police reports. And then shortly thereafter, the media pushed back and got a second release from the BYU Police Department. And that again was only the nine page police report, but it was redacted a little bit differently. That's Exhibit B. Exhibit A is the first release. Exhibit B is the second release. So Exhibit A, for comparison purposes, if you look at page one, there are certain redactions in this document. Those are all appropriate redactions. I've been doing this, by the way, for 30 years. I've been a, uh, an attorney for 30 years now. I have a lot of experience doing this kind of thing in other areas, and these are appropriate redactions. There are appropriate redactions, I recognize that, but there are also inappropriate redactions, and I recognize that too, and hope you will recognize it. Going to page two, these are all appropriate redactions, redacting names and perhaps contact information of witnesses or parties. Page three, that's an appropriate redaction. Page four, appropriate redaction. Page five, now we get to uh, more of a narrative report. And once again, we see in page five that these are appropriate redactions. All of these appear to be to redact the names of uh, witnesses and contact information. But now turn the page to page six. The entire page is redacted. That is not an appropriate redaction of police reports. This is not a public agency responding in good faith to the requirements of GRAMA to release the information that they should release. Indeed, everything in this entire page of narrative report is redacted except for the words at the very bottom right was attached to this report. And that will become important later. Now, if we go to page seven, once again, we see we go back to uh, appropriate redactions, I believe. And page 8 and page 9 are appropriate redactions as well. So, focusing on page 6, if we go now to the second release of police reports, that's my exhibit B, and going to page 6, what we see here is that now substantially more of this has not been redacted. In other words, they have unmasked, if I can use that expression right now, a great deal more of the report, but still there is an entire line that is about four-fifths of the way down that is redacted, and there are three entire lines at the bottom of that page that remain entirely redacted in what I believe is to be an improper use of redaction. But these are important because now we can see what it was that was initially completely redacted on page six of the first release, and that has to do with the details of the allegation made against Joseph Bishop. And then in the bottom paragraph, it has just one paragraph detailing the police's recounting in their narrative report of their interview with Joseph Bishop. This is what was redacted entirely in the first report. And the public, I believe, has a right to know when a private company is directing a public agency to redact that information, to hide this information in the first instance, the public has a right to know the contents of those communications and those directions. By the way, notice at the bottom now of the second set of 
public disclosure release on page six. Now we see that if you compare it with that other one, that other page six of the first one was attached to this report. That's at the bottom of the initial one was attached to this report. We now see that that has been redacted in the second disclosure. That has been redacted, but we know that it relates to their interview with Joseph Bishop. And the reason we know that is because similar language was used elsewhere. Once again, going to my first exhibit, the initial release, what we see on page seven, if you can get to page seven, this is the first release, exhibit A. We see that the first full paragraph starts with between the time reporting, uh, blank reported the rape, and going down to the middle of that, it says, I listened to it, listened to the recorded conversation, right? I listened to it and it was consistent to their interviews except the facts of the rape in the room layout. He mostly said he didn't remember when confronted about the rape. Now notice this next line. This next line is critical. This is the, the line in the first release. A copy of the recording was attached to this report. Refer to the recording for more details. Now compare, compare that page seven in the first report to the page seven in the second release. And you will see that that entire line, a copy of the recording was attached to this report and refer to the recording for more details is completely redacted in the second release of these same police reports. There is an effort being made obviously to hide from the public the fact that there is a recording that exists and that that recording was attached to this police report so that the public would not know that it existed and therefore the public could not request it not knowing that it existed. The same thing happens on page seven of the first um, release at the bottom of the next paragraph where it says this conversation was recorded and attached the report. I think it means attached to the report. But this was a separate conversation that was recorded by police and it says what that conversation was about. Go to page seven of the second release and you will see that that line also is completely redacted. The line, this conversation was recorded and attached to the report, I'm adding the two there, is completely redacted in the second release. Once again, there is a consistent pattern of activity of trying to hide the fact that recordings exist that are attached in part of the police report so that the public will not know that they exist in order to request them. Once again, the public has a right to know what the private company was telling the public agency to release and to hide and why they were telling them to hide this information. The same thing happens, by the way, at the end of page eight. Once again, we have another example. Page eight. Now this is the, let me go to the first release. I'm thumbing backward and forward as I expect you are too. In the first release, which was done, I think the day after the, uh, the initial media request was made, we see that all of page eight, it's just one paragraph there at the top, is not redacted except for one name. That's an appropriate redaction. But see that last line, the recording was attached to this report? Now go to page eight of the second release, which was done a day or two later. Once again, that line is now redacted. The recording was attached to this report is redacted. Once again, there's no way that a police agency is going to be redacting this if they're acting on their own and trying to comply with grammar. There is no conceivable reason why they would want the public to not know that an audio recording on all three of these instances is uh, maintained by the police and as part of the police report.
And as I've said before and shown before, these are things that have information in it that are damaging to the private company of BYU and the LDS Church. Finally, page nine. That's the last page. And once again, it's a small page. By that, I mean there's not much information on it. It's just a paragraph at the top. And you will see there that it says uh, blank, but we know that's McKenna Denson now. She's gone public. I feel it's okay to use her name. Sent me a rough draft of her statement. This is her written statement. All right, this isn't an audio recording. This is her written statement that mentions Carlos A.C. and Thomas Monson. However, the case was closed before she was able to send a completed version. I attached the rough draft to this report. See, her rough draft of her statement that mentions those things was attached to this report. It was in the original of the disclosure of the police department to the media. But then on the second and subsequent disclosure, a day or two later, look at page nine on the exhibit B. The entire paragraph now is redacted. So this is a consistent pattern of trying to hide the fact that there's a lot more to this, this investigation than just this nine-page narrative report. And in fact, there's multiple audio tapes. There's a written statement by the uh, complaining witness, by the alleged victim. And we know now, two years later, that these audio recordings and her written statement contained information that were damaging to the private company that was directing the public agency to redact, to make these redactions. And I say that only because there's no way that any, but that any police agency would ever do this. They would never redact it in such a way. These are improper redactions. So that is the evidence relating to it. By the way, can I ask how much time I have left? You have two minutes. All right, thank you. So now we know because now we know due to informal discovery between the parties that there is a privilege log that contains, oh, I don't, 20, 30 emails, 40 emails between the private company of BYU and the public agency of uh, the police department, the BYU police department, and that these were generated relating to the very issue of how to respond to the public disclosure requests. This is the smoking gun. This is the information that uh, the opposing party does not want the public to know about. And this is the information that the public should indeed know about. There are many, many emails that exist between the private company and the public agency that document what the private company was telling the public agency to do. And those are the emails that I have requested. Those are the emails that the BYU Police Department has refused to give me. Those are the emails that detail the interference of a private company in the affairs of a public agency. The public has a right to know what is in those emails. And that's why we're requesting the committee to order the release of those emails to the public. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Mr. Strait, you have 20 minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, members of the committee. We appreciate your time today. Um, just so everyone is aware, with us on the call for uh, University Police are David Anderson, who is University Counsel, and then Lieutenant Wade Robb, and Karen Ellingson, who is the Grandma and Clery Act Specialist with University Police. Uh, I want to start with the presentation we just heard, which, except for the last minute and a half, had nothing to do with the issue before the committee today. It was a rehash of issues that have all been completely disposed of and resolved um, with multiple parties and are not at issue today by his own acknowledgement, has 
resolved his issue related to the audio and video recordings. The other parties have as well. KUTV has withdrawn its appeal. The only issue before the committee today is whether a handful of emails between Brigham Young University lawyers and Brigham Young University employees are privileged. The answer to that question is a clear and unequivocal yes. I will just take one minute to put to rest this um, um, description that was provided in petitioner's opening statement. Far from some nefarious plot hatched by um, university police and BYU and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the decisions on what to release and when to release it relating to these recordings were undertaken by university police and counsel for university police in connection with the state records ombudsman that university police contacted not once but twice in March and then again in April of 2018 to make sure they were complying appropriately. And only then were things released. And as the committee is aware, and I don't want to relitigate this issue either, at that time, university police was not even a governmental entity subject to grandma. That didn't happen until May of 2019. So far from any conspiracy, this was done in consultation with the ombudsman and done appropriately, and redactions were made appropriately, etc. But irrespective, that's not an issue anymore. No one is disputing that the information has been appropriately released as we sit here today. The issue is... Um, of all the parties that had previously been involved in this case, only petitioner issued a grammar request that expressly sought privileged information from university police. And the U.S. Supreme Court explained 40 years ago that the attorney-client privilege is the oldest of the privileges for confidential communications known to the common law. Its purpose is to encourage full and frank communication between attorneys and their clients and thereby promote broader public interest in the observance of law and administrated administration of justice. Grama expressly includes protections for both the attorney-client privilege and the work product doctrine that university police appropriately asserted pursuant to section 63G-2-305-17 and 18. Petitioner's appeal is an attempted direct assault on this privilege, and it must be denied. Um, in essence, distilled down, petitioner's arguments are really that adding university employees who are not employees of university police somehow breaks the privilege, and that BYU's lawyers, including myself, cannot represent university police. These are simply untenable positions that we respectfully request the committee to reject. The Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, in the Upjohn case made clear that communications between company lawyers and all levels of company employees were privileged where the communications were made by the company's employees to counsel acting as such in order to secure legal advice. That's been the law since 1981. And it's very clear, and it applies across the board in the setting of corporate and related entities like BYU, which is a nonprofit private corporation. Um, as set forth in detail in our briefing, all of the people that were on these disputed emails, and let me be clear, we created a privilege log 
consistent with Utah law and provided that petition to petitioner in an effort to get this issue resolved. That's why he has a privilege log, because we provided that to him. All of the people on those disputed emails are BYU employees acting in their capacities as BYU employees and seeking and receiving legal advice from BYU lawyers. Upjohn makes it clear that those communications are privileged. And let me be clear, BYU, and we set this out in detail, I won't rehash it all, it established university police. It created that police force in the 50s and throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, and through today, university police employees, the officers were both employees of BYU and sworn police officers. That has been true throughout the history of university police. And in fact, Utah legislature recognized as early as 1979 that university police was established by Brigham Young University. That has been acknowledged and consistently maintained throughout the history of university police. All that happened in 2019 was an amendment to the statute to, for the first time, make university police subject to GRAMA and also university police officers receive governmental immunity. University police had previous to that followed GRAMA as its own internal policy. So with all of these employees on all of the emails that are issued being employees of Brigham Young University, including police employees and others, under Upjohn, it is clear that all of those communications are privileged. And there's really no dispute about the fact that they're employees, the fact that these otherwise would be privileged. It's just this issue that somehow adding an additional employee makes them not privileged, which is not supported by the facts or the law. And as we put in our briefing, BYU and its university police are not some strange anomaly only known in Utah. Many private universities have sworn police forces, and the university's Office of General Counsel and outside lawyers represent and provide privileged advice to the police and the rest of the university. We've provided several examples in the briefing, Notre Dame, Harvard, MIT. If you look at the example of MIT, it has its own police officers, sworn police force, and its lawyers provide legal advice to MIT police. Such communications are unquestionably privileged, and Harvard explains this very well on its website. Communications that Harvard faculty and staff have with Harvard attorneys in confidence for the purpose of seeking legal advice are protected by the attorney-client privilege from disclosure to opposing parties. This same arrangement exists at Utah's public institutions of higher education, like the University of Utah and Utah State. Petitioner cites absolutely no authority to the contrary because there is none, and therefore his appeal must be denied. Now, he makes an even more fundamental attempt at assault on the privilege by claiming that BYU's lawyers cannot represent BYU police at all. He cites no authority for this argument, and again, it must be rejected because there is no authority. The relevant authority and practical experience demonstrate that just like other university lawyers, county attorneys, city attorneys, those lawyers can represent both the entity, whether it's a private corporation or a governmental entity, and its internal departments, including police departments and PR departments. So just like those situations, BYU lawyers can also represent BYU, a private nonprofit corporation, 
and its internal departments and employees, including the police and the university communications. And we cited case law from several jurisdictions supporting that same notion. Um, nothing in the 2019 amendments that subjected university police to grammar for the first time purport to disrupt the decades of established precedent concerning the attorney-client privilege. And these public duties of university police, just like there was no conflict when you had sworn officers who weren't subject to grammar and university police received legal advice from university lawyers, nothing in the 2019 amendments changes that. It requires some reporting obligations, the same kind of obligations that university police departments have throughout the country, including those at private universities. And even if there were some, these were two some entities, the university itself and university police, which they aren't, the university police is just a division of BYU with its officers all being employees at BYU, but even if they were different, their legal interests in complying with the law, namely grammar, are absolutely aligned, and therefore there wouldn't be a conflict anyway. Um, it is just as appropriate for BYU lawyers to represent both BYU and university police as it is, for example, the Salt Lake County attorney to represent both the county itself and the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office and its officers. Um, a final important point on privilege generally. BYU, its lawyers, and its employees, including the police employees, have relied for decades on this legal advice being provided in the way it is and the attendant privilege. To disrupt that now, and again, no other party has ever made this suggestion, made this attack, including the parties that were involved in the same dispute here, would absolutely violate the Supreme Court warning that if the purpose of the attorney-client privilege is to be served, the attorney and the client must be able to predict with some degree of certainty whether particular discussions will be protected. An uncertain privilege or one which purports to be certain but results in widely varying applications by the courts is little better than no privilege at all. And that's the Upjohn case, page 393. Um, finally, as the committee knows, Grandma also protects from disclosure records that were prepared by or for an attorney, employee, or agent of a governmental entity for or in anticipation of litigation or a judicial, quasi-judicial, or administrative proceeding. And that's Section 30518. University police appropriately asserted that protection as well as the attorney-client privilege, and that's been borne out by the facts. The university police finds itself today in this hearing with petitioner. The privilege and the, the, the work product doctrine were not asserted because of some attenuated fear about the LDS church. They were appropriately submitted because there was an anticipation of the litigation we find ourselves in today, plus a prior committee proceeding and a prior lawsuit. Um, all of these protections are incorporated into grammar for the very reason that the Supreme Court identified to advance the public interest so police officers can receive quality legal advice and respond appropriately to grammar requests and the other obligations that they have. That's exactly what happened in this case. The communications at issue are protected by both the privilege and by the work product doctrine. They should not be disclosed, 
and we respectfully request that the petitioner's appeal be denied. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Strait. Um, I neglected to ask the committee if they had any questions for the petitioner and now the respondent. I have a question. Um, this is Patricia. Go ahead. Um, this is Patricia Smith-Mansfield. I'm a citizen representative. I have a question for Mr. Strait. So in your testimony, in uh, talking about the work product doctrine and the attorney-client privilege, could you, part of the petitioner's argument is that this included legal advice for the grammar request that he submitted. So it is you, your testimony today that part of the correspondence or part of the grammar citation of work product is in the preparation of the open records request? I just need to ask Yes, so some of the some of the emails that are at issue are around this time that there were multiple requests for the records that are at issue in this case, and so therefore they do relate to the records that are at issue in this case, yes. Any further questions? Okay, Mr. You have five minutes to, um, for your to present your closing statement. Thank you. First off, let me address the Upjohn case. The Upjohn case has no bearing on this case. I think that we're agreed on the holding of the Upjohn case that if an attorney represents a corporation, then they can also represent all the different divisions of that corporation. However, the Upjohn case does not deal with the critical distinction here, which is where one of those claimed divisions of the corporation is at one and the same time a public agency. And so what the opposing side is saying is that they can represent both the private company and the public agency under the theory that the public agency is a division of the private company. And I will tell you that 99% of the time, I don't think there would be a problem with that. Honestly, I'm a reasonable guy here. But, that, but this is not that 99% of the time. This is that 1%. These are the unique facts where the public agency has done an investigation, a criminal investigation, of a former employee of the private company, found damaging information. The public agency receives public disclosure requests. The private company tells them, hey, don't release the damaging information, and the public agency goes along with it, as I have demonstrated. Now, I've done this a lot of times before, as I say. Here's the deal. I do pub public disclosure requests, and they usually deal with criminal investigations. I'm a criminal defense attorney primarily, and I have been for 22 years. Before that, eight years, I was a prosecutor. And I give it over to the records committee, or excuse me, the, um, the custodian of records, send it by email, send it by letter. They get back to me saying, hey, can you give us a little time? Fine, take your time. They get it back to me, and they have redacted it appropriately. They don't have to call a lawyer to get advice about it. This is something they're trained to do. It's not rocket science. You're just redacting the names and the contact information from the reports. But here, showing that this was not a usual case, not only did the records custodian and the chief of police at the public agency contact an attorney, these emails show that no less than five attorneys were involved all of them claiming to represent the private agency and they're giving advice to the public agency about how to respond to this public disclosure request. Let me end with an example which I think puts it in stark relief. Let's say that the Salt Lake City Police Department 
gets a report about a sexual assault that happened in a Walmart, okay? And the Walmart, uh, it was one of their employees at Walmart who's alleged to have committed the sexual assault on Walmart property. So the Salt Lake City Police Department, they do their investigation and uh, they, they have a lot of information in it. And some of that information in their reports is damaging to Walmart. So Walmart gives them a call and says to the Salt Lake Police Department, hey, you've received some uh, public disclosure requests. Would you mind keeping out and hiding and redacting from those public disclosure requests the information that's damaging to us at Walmart? Because, you know, it's bad for business. It's not going to make us look good. It's going to put us in a bad spot as far as our liability to any civil suit based upon the sexual assault happening on our property and by our employee. And in this hypothetical, to match what actually happened here, the Salt Lake City Police Department goes along with it. That's what we have going on here. And we have emails between the Salt Lake City Police Department and Walmart that document the directions Walmart was giving to the Salt Lake City Police Department. And there is no way that the Grama Act would allow those emails to remain private. And just to take it one step further, I've probably only got 30 seconds. Mr. Strait and all the other attorneys involved in this are saying, hey, we represent Walmart. But guess what? We also represent the Salt Lake City Police Department. And so since they're both our clients, any communications that we had with Walmart and any communications we had with the Salt Lake City Police Department, they are protected by attorney-client privilege. That's how ridiculous this argument is, and that is why this committee should order release of the emails. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Mr. Strait, you have five minutes. Thank you. Um, let me start first with what I thought was, and I appreciate um, petitioner's candor, an acknowledgement that we agree on the holding of Upjohn, and Upjohn disposes this case. Um, Brigham Young University is the, uh, is the entity at issue Every single police officer is an employee of Brigham Young University. Therefore, under Upjohn, all those communications are privileged. The fact that there is a police department within Brigham Young University is a fact of statutory acknowledgement in the Utah Code. The Utah Code repeatedly since 1979 has acknowledged that there can be police forces established by a private college or university. That's exactly what we have here, where university police is simply a division of Brigham Young University. Its sworn police officers are employees of Brigham Young University, and therefore, under Upjohn, there's no question that the privilege applies. Now, let me take a moment and talk about this hypothetical that, that, that petitioner just asserted. The hypothetical breaks down immediately because Salt Lake City police officers are not employees of Walmart. The hypothetical has no application to what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here are an, a, an entire set of Brigham Young University employees, which is memorialized and acknowledged in Utah law by statute, who are a police agency established by Brigham Young University. When Brigham Young University lawyers give legal advice to those employees, that legal advice is privileged. I think the if we just turn back to first principles and understand the importance of the attorney-client privilege, that that allows 
corporations, entities, public entities, private entities to receive legal advice and obtain legal advice so that they can make the best decisions possible in compliance with their legal obligations, that fosters the public interest and the interest that our society has decided for, as the Supreme Court said, it's one of the longest confidential protections in the common law. As a society, we decided that is in the public interest. That's all that happened here. And again, let me reiterate, not just did university police seek legal advice, it also sought the counsel of the state records ombudsman to make sure it was doing things appropriately with the document, the underlying documents, which are no longer at issue, but were at issue back then. That advice, the legal advice that university police receives from Brigham Young University lawyers is and always has been for decades privileged. And let me make one final point. Nothing in those 2019 amendments changed the fact that university police is still a division of BYU and that, it, that its officers are employees of BYU. The change was it made it expressly subject to grammar, which it had not been in the past. And Brigham Young University, its university police and its lawyers are committed to complying with the law and getting and receiving legal advice that will help them in that endeavor. For all of those reasons, we respectfully request that the committee deny this appeal and protect the attorney-client privilege and the, the work product doctrine that are memorialized in grammar. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Strait. Are there any questions before we move to deliberations by the committee? So hearing none, Rebecca, if you could unmute the committee so that we can have deliberations. Does anyone want uh, You guys are gonna have to unmute yourself. I, I cannot unmute you. <laughs> Uh, I would ask the committee if you have to identify yourself if you ask a question or speak. This is Trisha. Um, so I guess one of the issues before the committee is um, the only issue, I guess, is the the correspondence that remains outstanding and the governmental entity has, has asserted attorney-client privilege and work product under Grandma 305, 17, and 18. Um, I think the committee should, I guess it comes down to whether the committee believes that uh, these correspondence um, adhere to the gold standard people remember the gold standard of attorney-client privilege, but also in addition to the gold standard is the work work product, which allows um, a governmental entity's attorney to produce work product in anticipation for an administrative proceeding, which might be argued a grandma request, but we've had these arguments before and it's come down to the fact that in an open records request, does the governmental entity assume that it's going to lay or land before the state records committee? Because that is the administrative proceeding. And I'm not sure that that's the case. Many governmental entities use attorneys to fulfill open records requests. 
not needed. Uh, it's become more so than a decade, a decade and a half ago. I think usually in these cases, the committee would take a look at the correspondence to see if the correspondence is privileged and was in preparation for a an administrative proceeding. Um, I think merely in using the petitioner's example of Walmart, if Walmart were a governmental entity, it would have every right as a governmental entity to ask an attorney about answering a grammar request if it thought it would lead to an administrative proceeding. We don't know that unless we see the correspondence. We don't know that they adhere to the three prongs of the gold standard unless we see it. And that's why generally we look at the correspondence. I guess that's what would be a discussion first is if the, co the committee would like to see I guess there's 40 emails that are part of part of that correspondence, or 40, I guess, emails, probably emails related to the, the correspondence, which may include both both of those parts, gold standard or uh, an administrative proceeding work product, or may not. So I guess uh, would other members like to see the correspondence? And maybe I should make a motion that we, I don't know, Rebecca, did we get the correspondence beforehand? Uh, no, we did not. Okay, so that would mean we would need to get the correspondence, review it in camera this month, and then yeah. have pick up the proceeding next month. Right. So, uh, <laughs> can you clarify um, your point about the, um, the administrative Okay. Yes. 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 So, okay. So if you return, if you turn to Grandma, three hundred five, seventeen, and eighteen. Seventeen is the records are subject to attorney-client privilege. This is the part that the 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 correspondence would have to adhere to the gold standard. Now, I don't know if including, uh, it could maybe be a discussion including other uh, BYU employees voids the gold standard between client and attorney. Uh, that could be something the committee could discuss. 18 is records prepared for or by an attorney meant with others in anticipation of litigation or judicial, quasi-judicial, or administrative proceeding. The records committee is an administrative proceeding. Right. right. So fulfilling a grandma request in itself is not an administrative proceeding and wouldn't be privileged under 18, but correspondence relating to presentation before the records committee is an administrative proceeding and it could, might be, Covered as or uh, protected under 30518. And, and that goes to your, that goes to your most. Yeah, I think we should see the the records in camera because usually I think when it's attorney client privilege we look at the records in camera because 
we're not, not that we don't believe, but we have a, a healthy skepticism uh, in this particular classification and seeing if that's the case to make sure that the gold standard is here too and that, that these things are, are right on point. Right. right. Any other comments? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is David. I will, I will second the motion to go in camera to review the records. So having a motion before um, so that motion, then let me just clarify is to review the records in camera. That would be the 40 with 40 emails. <laughs> and Trisha, I think part of your motion, since this, the way this proceeding is now, now we're doing this electronically, we have no choice but to continue. Right. And that gives the committee time to review the records over the next month. And Rebecca, um, I think we would be continuing to the next hearing. That would be the June hearing. Yeah. Right. And so in that, it would be beholden to the to be BYU Police Department attorney to provide uh, the executive secretary with that correspondence, I think within a week's time, because we'd have to review it before the next meeting. So I hope that that would be possible. Mr. Strait, would that be possible to get the... And if, if appropriate, if I could just be heard on this issue, um, the, the concern I have here is there is no challenge that the underlying documents are privileged unless the committee accepts Mr. Much higher level argument that including a different employee on the communications breaks the privilege or that um, having BYU lawyers represent university police somehow can never be privileged. So under those circumstances and under the Utah Supreme Court's opinion in Landon v. Allred 2014 opinion, in-camera review is not the default position. And so I'm, I'm just concerned that, that that's not, given that there's no underlying challenge, that's not the appropriate way to go in this case. Um, Mr. Strait, I'm going to yeah. stop you right there. Because okay. both the petitioner and you also argued that these correspondence were related to answering the grammar request or the administrative proceeding. And so in addition to there being a third party, which may or may not break, I guess that would be what the committee would have to review, but also both sides set a claim stating that these were also in response to grammar requests. So the committee does have a right to look at the camera, the records in camera. There's nothing in grandma that establishes a prohibitive nature that you're arguing that the committee cannot review the records in camera. And, and, I, and I'm sorry, I'm just try, I was just trying to be clear. I, I, I'm just saying that I don't think that's that, necessary given okay. the nature of the argument. Okay, so, um, so yeah, thank so, you. So we don't guess, yeah, no, no what I'm asking is this is the committee's time, and so uh, the committee will continue. Oh, no, and I was trying to answer your question about when we could have them to you. I think we'd have mm -hmm. to be in order and then decide what we were going to do. So we, we, you know, if we get an order from the committee today, then we would then make a decision on, you know, how quickly can we yeah. get um, in-camera records or not. Okay, I'm going to defer. Okay, I'm going to defer to our own attorney, Paul. What do yeah. you think we can do in this instance, please? Paul, and, and, mm -hmm. try that out. 
Basically, it's just a case of, in order to determine whether or not they're attorney-client privilege, you just want to be able to take a look at the records. That's the best way to do it. Yes, but he's arguing that he will wait till the order is submitted to him, and then he will get us, he will consider whether he can get him to us. So in that sense, I guess we have to wait on it. We'll figure it out within days. Okay. The motion before us is to continue the hearing to review the records in camera, and is that correct, Mr. Stone? Yes. Okay. All those in favor of this motion, and we need to take a roll call vote, so I will call each member's name. So, Patricia Smith-Mansfield? Yes. Tom Harrelson? Tom, I muted you. You're going to have to unmute your phone. Let's move on. Holly Richardson? That's a yes. She signaled. Yes. I'm David Fleming? Yes. And we're just waiting for Tom, Rebecca. Tom, can you hear us? I can. Can you hear me? We can. I didn't have, my mute button wasn't on for that vote, so I don't know what went on. But anyway, my vote is yes. Okay. Thank you. So, all committee members voted yes on that motion, and so the order will be delivered to the petitioner and the respondent in the next couple days. Could I? I'd like to thank everyone for participating. Hello. Excuse me. Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm sorry. I had a motion of sorts as a point of order. Could I also ask, if it's all right with the committee, that the documents that are ordered to be provided include the privilege log that was provided to me so that the committee can be assured that they have received all the emails that are represented as existing in the privilege log? Would that be all right? The motion that I heard was that the 40-plus emails be provided to the committee for review. Ken? Yes. That was not part of the motion. I suggest that the petitioner would like to submit that privilege log to us that he has, then we would have it. Well, I had to return my copy to the respondent. Okay. So, would someone like to make that motion? I'm not talking to the petitioner. Okay. I'm not talking to the petitioner. Okay. I'm talking to the committee. Patricia, if I understood what he just said, he says, unless I misunderstood, does he no longer have that log? He had to return it to the respondent? No, he has the log in his possession, but he had to return it. So, he does not have it in his possession now. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So, if we request that log, I guess we'd have to request it to be sent from the respondent, saying the petitioner no longer has it, to verify that the emails match up what the original request was. This is David. I would suggest maybe that we want to, we've already voted on the previous motion, so I guess we could have a second motion that asks for the privilege log to be provided to accompany the records for in-camera review. And if that's what we need to do, I'm not sure if we can't just amend and re-vote on the original motion, but if we'd rather have a separate motion, I'd make the motion. I'll second that. If it needs to be a separate motion, I'll second that. So, what we have before us is a second motion for the, it would be the respondent to provide that log with the records that are in-camera review. Is that correct? 
Yes. And the motion was made by David Fleming and seconded by Tom Haroldson. And, and just a clarification, Ken, I, uh, I think uh, the idea is that um, we will know for sure that we have received all of the records from camera review that were um, included in the privilege log, which I think is what's at issue, is whether or not um, the respondent can assert privilege on all of the records. Exactly. That's the purpose of the review. Exactly. Thanks for that clarification. So all in favor of the motion? Um, I'll call out Nate again. Um, so Tricia? Yes. Tom Harrelson? Yes. Holly Richardson? Yes. David Fleming? Yes. And I vote yes, Ken Williams. Thank you all the parties for participating in this hearing and um, we you should be uh, receiving the order in days. within days. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thank, Thank you, you, everybody. Okay, so that's the end of the hearing. The committee has voted unanimously that BYUPD must provide to them all the emails between BYU and BYUPD relating to what to release and what not to release in response to the public disclosure requests to the Utah State Records Committee so that the Records Committee can review these emails in camera. You heard that expression a lot. That just means back in their chambers privately. That they can review the contents of these emails and make their own determination as to whether they are privileged or whether they do need to be released to the public. BYUPD required that the committee issue an order to that effect and that order will include not only the emails being given to the committee but also the privilege log being given to the committee so that they can compare the privilege log with the emails and make sure that BYUPD is being fully responsive to the order and giving them all the emails they have, at least all the emails that are represented in that privilege log. This matter has now been continued over to the hearing next month. These are monthly hearings only held one day of each month for the committee to make their final decision on what can and what cannot what will and what will not be released of these emails to the public. And there's something else we're going to have to wait and see too. Once this order is issued by the Utah State Records Committee to BYUPD to turn over the emails to them together with the privilege log for their review of them in camera, will the BYUPD actually honor that order and do as they are ordered or will they instead refuse to turn them over and appeal the issue up to the district court level in Utah? That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.